Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. And as we get into this, then um, we have to define terms. We have to make sure that the terms we're using are appropriate terms. And there's an attack being done in many ways on each of the terms of the three entities that make up or three persons of the Trinity. The first one of those is that of Father. Uh, This has been heavily under attack. There are some translations that you are going to see, some newer translations that go completely gender neutral. I was reading an article the other day that in addition to being in a postmodern, post-truth world, that we are in a post-binary world, which is a very interesting concept, that what has been always existing, men and women, and that binary aspect, that we're actually beyond that now with the fluidity of gender and all the blends and things that go across with that. This causes a lot of problems, particularly in language. Uh, you may have come across the term Latinx sometimes that some people who are wanting to progressive use. They're using the term Latinx because the language itself is gender-loaded, if you will. If you are a male person of Latin descent, then you are a Latino. If you're female, you're a Latina. And so they don't want to use that and put you in a box with Latinx. Now, most... Latinos and Latinas don't use that. They use Latino and Latina and all the rest that goes with it because it's, it's rooted in the language. The same thing with French, Spanish, Russian, dozens of other languages that I'm familiar with. More so than English, the words themselves have a feminine or a male aspect to them. And if you strip that away, then you literally dissolve the language. And so we have this whole conversation about pronouns and and things of this nature, and that's a conversation we'll have in a few more weeks. But it relates to this one in this regard. There are articles that have come out recently that says uh, one particularly in the religion news service from a theologian who said, the title of it was this, why our preferred pronoun for God should be they that we should prefer and refer to God as they or them, but not as him or father or any of that type of language. Now, here's the irony of this for a moment, if you can feast upon this. The concept and culture of preferred pronouns is that you call me what I prefer for myself to be viewed. And yet, in the case of God, they're not doing that. They're saying what their preferred pronouns would be for him. Because God's preferred pronouns are distinct and throughout Scripture. And it's very specifically that of Father. And it's very specifically male. And there are reasons for that that in no way denigrate femininity or in any way take away from from women's rise or access. In fact, anywhere that Christianity is properly practiced, it's always been liberating and uplifting to women. But biblically, 
We are stuck, if you will, with this terminology. It goes back as far as Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23. God's talking says, then you will tell him, meaning Pharaoh, this is what the Lord, or Yahweh says, Israel is my firstborn son. Okay, not in a physical, sexual fashion, but that spiritually there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's an element of connection here. So son implies something else. And I commanded you, let my son go so he can worship me. But since you've refused, I will now kill your firstborn son. The whole element of this was a sonship, and it was one father speaking to another father and saying, you're not releasing my son, I'm not going to release yours. So that one of the earliest understandings that, that the Jews had of God was father. Now, at the same time, they had such a magnificent, awesome view of his holiness that the idea of using that term, even though it's referenced several other times in the, in the, uh, um, uh, in the scripture, was something that would have been very, very disturbing to them. Um, in several other places in Scripture, Isaiah 63, 16 says, You are our Father. Though Abraham doesn't know us, Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, our Father, our Redeemer, from old is your name. In Isaiah 64, it says, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Both of those passages in Isaiah are talking about God as a Father. So the Jews would have known that. Now, there were feminine expressions of God, if you will, that we see also through Scripture but follow how this is. He's named father. But in Isaiah 66, he says, not that you're a mother. He says, but as a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you, God's saying, and you'll be comforted over Jerusalem. So there's certain language that you see in Old New Testament that, that, that God's got this feminine imagery. In fact, there's 26 instances of that throughout Scripture where feminine imagery is used to describe the activity of God, even a characteristic of God, but never, ever is feminine language used to address God in title or name. Scripture uses exclusively masculine terminology for that. In other words, Father is not just a description of God, it's who He is. I may exhibit feminine traits or what are stereotypically viewed that way in my actions or so, but I'm a father to my children, it's who I am. In the same way. Now, interestingly, only five of those 26 instances are found in the New Testament, in the Gospels and the Epistles. The rest are in the Old Testament. After the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God coming in the flesh, we find fewer references to God with female imagery. The term Father, then, excludes not feminine qualities, but rather the idea of a distant and impersonal deity, which is precisely the picture of the supreme being is still seen in all these different religions and beliefs out there. So this concept of God as Father, this, this almost terrifying figure that they wouldn't even use referred to that way, was how the Jews ver- viewed God. So when Jesus comes along and he's referencing him as Father... They really flip out over that. They have a real issue with that in the same way as they have the idea of of the Trinity suddenly being an expansion of the understanding of God as one. They struggle over that issue. It implies an intimacy. It it implies an approachability. It it implies a relationship with the Almighty that to them was just not a possibility. They were so terrified and such had an awesomeness of God that they removed the vowels from his name. So to this day, we don't know if it's Yahweh, if it's Jehovah, or what it is. All we have is YHWH. That's all because they removed the things because they didn't want to possibly offend God by mispronouncing his name. Is it Carolyn or Caroline? You ever have a friend like that? You reference their name and they say, it's not Carolyn, it's Caroline. 
Now, if you're Caroline, um, we're good, okay? You know, if you, if you, you know, same thing if it's, it's not Brian, it's Brian, you know, whatever. Um, you know, some people get really intense about that, all right? Um, that was their concern. The last thing you want to know or do is, is offend God in mispronouncing his name. And then Jesus comes along, God in the flesh, and um, he's referencing this father. Not only that, but he's teaching his disciples, us. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. This then is how you should pray. Our father, our, our, our mother, our father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. But there are those today that are using mother or just trying to make everyone feel good and included. And, and that's fine, but it's not what the scripture says. He may have those traits, but who he is is father, and there's reasons for that. There's specific reasons for that. One of them, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, a lot of times in our society today, we, we change that out. Sometimes you get married, you hyphenate your name, you, you keep your married name, whatever else. But traditionally, historically, throughout time in most cultures, they'll take the Father's name. It's a naming process. There's an implication to who your father is in that. My wife chose to take her middle name, which she wasn't very fond of, and tossed that out and put her, her uh, um, uh, family name, which was important to her, as, as a middle name, not hyphenated, as a middle name. So my kids carry the last name Tomko. And so there's an identity that's with the father. That's part of what was being expressed here. There was a sense of, 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 of certain terminology and phrases of respect that you'd have or that would refer things. Now, my two sons have... Not once that I can recall have ever referred to me as Almighty Father. <laughs> Creator of life. Maker and deliverer of all good things. That, they've not done that except when they need money. <laughs> but they definitely would not refer to my wife as Almighty Mother. As much as we want to say these traits don't matter anymore, and as much as they've been misused misogynously and in and, 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 and ways that have been horrible and things, the reality is there's something about male and female. And there's something about a father. And as a father, I can have certain traits that are even feminine in that process, but I can't replace the mother. And vice versa in many situations and circumstances. And so when God is just referencing himself as Father, when Jesus says, our Father, there's something in there that we can't lose. And so when anybody's trying to tell you something different and saying to be inclusive, we'll get to the idea of how this is included later here in a moment as we go along. And we get into adoption. But this does not diminish femininity at all. But he is our Father. We go on then to this other thing that you're going to find um, uh, twisted around. And um, there's this concept that Jesus Christ, and there are some people who want to sit here and tell you, and most of you know, and we've discussed this before, that, that Christ was not Jesus' last name. He was not Mr. Christ. There were not a bunch of little Christies all over the place, okay? The, the, Jesus Christ, Jesus was his name. Christ was, for want of a term, a definitional term. The term Christ meant the anointed one or the Messiah. So it's literally Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the anointed one. Someone who had been looked through for, by Jews through all of the Old Testament as a fulfillment of God's uh, um, direction and the liberator of Israel. 
Now, here's a twist that comes into play. So people want to sit here and say, well, you know, Jesus was his name. But Christ, that's a different thing. And so what they want to tell you is that Jesus was basically a man just like the rest of us that became the Christ. He became this cosmic power and strength by positive confession and by a lot of other things that that God then says, yep, you're the Christ. You're the first one. And the rest of you can also be Christ. Just let the Christ in you rise up. Just, Just name it, claim it, be positive. Now listen, positive thinking works. I mean, it is true. I mean, if you're a positive person, better things are going to happen than if you're a negative. You're all going to die. You know how that is. You're going you're to attract people with positivity. You're going to push people away with negativity. There's positiveness is, is a right thing, but that truth gets twisted into trying to make us little gods. And so I am positive that positive thinking is good. But I'm also positive that if you think that you are a God, a little Christ, that you're crazy. Those things don't work in that fashion. That's not who we are. But that's the teaching coming out right now, is that you just need to claim the Christ within you. You need to to be all those things. You have the divine. You are a little God. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, it blows us apart, but people still misuse it. It's not even saying Jesus is the visible image. It says Christ, the Messiah here, is the visible image of the invisible God. He's God, in other words, in the flesh. In case anyone didn't get it, he says he existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. Jesus Christ is pre-existent as part of the Trinity. He didn't suddenly wake up one morning and say, I'm feeling very Christy today. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling from the beginning... He goes on in John chapter 14, 1, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. He's claiming divinity right there with God, co-equal. John 14, verses 6 and 7 has a lot of meaning for us as a church. You may have noticed this, maybe you didn't. Jesus answered, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you'll know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. But this passage, I am the way, and the truth and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You may not have noticed it, and don't gang up on the way out. But if you come in our primary entrance or you come in our northern entrance, and you look down as you come in, you'll find embedded in the cement a portion of this passage of Scripture where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We put that in the cement 15 years ago when that portion of the building was constructed almost 16 years ago now. We knew even then the way culture was changing, and we wanted to put this bedrock statement right in cement, right there in stone, that we would never forget that a biblical worldview is that Christ, Jesus the Christ, is God in the flesh, that he is the only way to the Father. He's the only way for salvation, that that the way and the truth and the life all channels through Jesus Christ. Now, in our society today, this is a problem. Christianity is, in many ways, the most inclusive, most diverse gang you're ever going to find. Anybody can be part of the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter your nationality, education, background, ethnicity, nothing. And we, there, everyone can be. But it's also exclusive in the sense that it all hinges upon the personhood, the recognition, and the work of Jesus Christ. So here's a challenge for your biblical worldview, whether you have one or not. 
Because if you have a biblical worldview, then this passage and others like that make it clear that this only way is through Christ. That there are not any other ways. There is no one else. There is no other path to salvation. If this is something that you reject, then you're not holding a biblical worldview. And if it's something that you do hold, then your biblical worldview will be challenged by others who don't understand that fully. Or do, and just reject it and don't like it. So we've got God the Father. We've got Jesus who is not just a Christ. He's the Christ. He's, he's co-equal. He's the, the pathway. It's his work on the cross that opens everything up and restores us in a relationship with, with the Trinity, with God. And now we have one of the most misunderstood aspects of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And the studies are showing that a significant portion of Christians uh, have a misunderstanding of the Holy Spirit. They either don't believe that he exists or sees him as an expression somehow of God, but not as God. Um, I think the most important one ever since George Lucas and Spielberg and the gang got together is, is that he's something like the force. May he be with you. Okay? It's something that we kind of mold and use and is impersonal. But in Scripture, we see him used in very specific terms. John chapter 14, again, Jesus is talking. He says, I'll ask the Father, and he'll give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. There's something really important about this, that the Holy Spirit is truth and guides us into truth. He's the one who breathes into men and, and women and, and empowers them. He's the one who wrote the scripture, not by possessing people, but throughout time and, and space, different men, different places, different continents, different languages, and yet from Genesis to Revelation, there's a cohesiveness because the same spirit that breathed into men and inspired. They had their skills, their abilities, the uniqueness that we can even tell when one writer is different than another writer, but the same spirit guided that because he's a spirit of truth. And it says the world cannot accept him because he neither, it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. Again, not in some possessive fashion, but just like breath is in our lungs. I was seated over here during um, the, the offering song. And um, in first service, it was really great because I was feeling just a little bit warm. And there's a vent, yep, right here. And it kicked on halfway through the song. I really enjoyed that. I, I know that's how you guys are all out here. I'm sitting here going, oh, this is really cool, okay? And I thought of that in the same way. The Spirit is often expressed as a wind that blows. And the refreshment of the Holy Spirit that can come to a life. The empowerment that can be part of that. Now, there's something unique also with the Holy Spirit. Some of us think that we are failed God in some fashion and we can never be forgiven and we're concerned about maybe committing the unforgivable sin that I, I say something or do something and from that point on I'm shut out of all eternity. Matthew chapter 12 addresses this, verse 31. Jesus says, so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. <sighs> Don't say anything bad about the Holy Spirit. God really gets ticked off over that. It's like he's very protective. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, Jesus. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Another passage says that he says the same thing because they were ascribing the works and miracles he was doing to like demonic activity. He's warning them, don't, don't associate. You're not hearing this right. You're not reading this right. 
and you're offending. That doesn't mean that you cuss and swear or you, you say right now in a dark moment, I rebuke the Holy Spirit, that you're doomed. There's many aspects of the Holy Spirit, but one of the primary aspects of the Holy Spirit is to bring conviction. Not one of us is a follower of Christ because we were so brilliant as to figure out the issue or because we're so morally superior to anybody else. None of us. We're told the Holy Spirit convicts us. It's, it's the Holy Spirit that makes us aware of our sin, that makes us conscious of God and the need for God. Without the conviction of the Holy Spirit, if we reject that conviction, if we ascribe to it demonic, if we sit here and shove that away, then there's no forgiveness because there's no conviction. And without conviction, we'll never ask to be forgiven. Are you following that? And so the, the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is rejecting the conviction of the, the primary work of that. And the terminology that's always used is, is he. It's, it's not a, a neutral element. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, it says the same Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. You get those moments where you just, I don't even know what to say, God. I'm so broken, or I'm so damaged, or I'm so joyous, or delight, whatever the case is. But the Spirit can rise up within us and, and, and can speak in a way and, and channels through that expresses the very needs of our hearts and our minds. There's something powerful in that. We go into, if you want to really get into this in detail, there's, there's like uh, um, uh, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14. And everyone knows Corinthians 13. You know, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but, but have not love, I am resounding like cymbals and clashing. And where do we hear that read? Almost all the time you hear that read, like 90% of the time at weddings, right? You know, but the last things are love and, and all this. and I'll, It's got nothing to do with the wedding. I mean, that's great. Everyone who did that, you're cool, okay? It, it, no, you're, you're not going to hell or anything. Not for that. Probably something else, but not for that, okay? <laughs> Just saying. But it's, 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 and it's okay to use it for that. But those three chapters, in, in the 12th chapter, it says the Holy Spirit gives us gifts of speaking in tongues. And not everyone speaks in tongues or, or has prophecies or, or healing or, or those things. And, and so these are real. But then the 13th chapter, the whole thing is to say, but even if you speak of the tongues of men and of angels, even if you have all these gifts and you don't have love, then you're really missing it. Those of you who feel you're particularly gifted by the Holy Spirit in a certain way, that's fantastic. But if you're not operating in love, if it's all about you, then you're wrong. You're missing it. And the next chapter says, and, and it's subject to the prophet, if you're, not, if you're not caring about other people, and especially strangers who might not catch on to what's going on, then you're missing the whole aspect of it. The Holy Spirit empowers. It's about truth. But whatever gifts are given are to be used with, with love. One writer puts it this way, that, that the Holy Spirit's always been present. You see within the Old Testament the same thing being said, but it's kind of like a dam in Egypt called the Aswan Dam that dammed up the Nile River and was going to turn into electric power. And even while they were working the dam, they had to let a little bit of a channel go through. The water could still go down because down below, people used that water um, for everything from cleaning to drinking to food to everything else they needed for that. But then when the dam was, was finished and the turbines were turned on, not only does the water continue to gush forward, but now there's electricity that lights up the whole Nile Valley. And the writer says it's kind of like that in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit was present and was useful and, and, and constant in people's lives. But at the day of Pentecost in Acts, suddenly it's like the hydroelectric thing got turned on and lit up everything. And there's this presence somehow. My background is, is from a Pentecostal background, and I saw a lot of excesses and a lot of foolishness with it. I also saw some powerful expressions of God in that. 
the current expression of, of Pentecostal or the Holy Spirit aspects. And again, a lot of weird stuff that goes with that, but there's a truth in the middle of it. That goes back to um, the turn of the last century, 1906. Now, leading up to 1906, in this country, in the decade prior to that, lynchings of African Americans in America had skyrocketed. It's estimated that over 1,000 blacks, mostly men, were lynched, hanged, shot, or sometimes buried alive in the U.S. in the decade preceding 1906. Millions of people in the U.S. joined the Ku Klux Klan. Racism was rampant. In Detroit alone, because we had so many Southerners that had moved up here, I always blame them, and that's just my own weakness. Um, the Ku Klux Klan had 20,000 members in Detroit. So in that decade, then comes 1906, and there's a one-eyed black pastor in a place called Azusa Street out in California. And as they're praying and as they're holding a service, suddenly there seems to be this incredible movement of God, this expression of the Holy Spirit. People came from literally around the world and all over the place. And here's what's unique about it. It washed away the color line. It was a black pastor leading it. There are whites, Asians, everyone was a part of it, and they worshiped together, and there was no separation. That's why I sit here and say something happened there. Whatever it was, maybe there were excesses, I don't know. But something happened in that moment of time, that in a time when lynchings and violence and racism was rampant, that everyone came together, that there was a blending of something there. The Holy Spirit unites us one to another. It doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are. It doesn't matter your ethnicity or whatever else. If you're a follower of Christ, we are brothers and sisters. I don't care what nationality you are. I don't care how you voted. Unless you voted different than me, then you were wrong. But that's a different issue. And we'll discuss it later, and I'll help you. No, I won't. We're still brothers and sisters. We have the same spirit in us. And in the same way that it cries out to God, it also draws us in together as brothers and sisters. The Holy Spirit is real. He is dynamic. He is not a force. He convicts us of sin. He unites us as brothers and sisters. He illuminates the word and helps us to understand things that maybe we didn't understand before the first three times we read the passage and suddenly, wow, something of the Spirit goes in and we see those things. He's real. And then this. Romans chapter 8, 15. The Spirit you received did not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy. Romans, it goes on rather in Galatians chapter 4, and it sums the whole thing up for us. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sunset. Sonship, rather. So you've got the father, and you've got the son. And that says, because you are his sons... Let's stop there for just a moment here. Because all the women are left out. So it's just, we're sons. You've got to understand the context being written. Sons in that context, and especially oldest sons, inherited everything from the father. If you were a woman, you got nothing. If you were a lesser son, you got limitations on it. But if you were adopted as a son or you were a son, you got everything. Some of the emperors of Rome were adopted sons of the previous emperor. And they got the whole kingdom. So when this passage is talking about adoption by the Spirit of God and that we all become sons before God, it's not excluding women, it's including and elevating women. All women, all men, moved by the Spirit of God to repent and to draw close to the person of Jesus Christ, all men and women become the sons of God. 
And the spirit within us cries out, Abba, Father. Years ago, there were two really good friends of my wife's and I who could not have children. And at one point in time, they chose to adopt. They decided to do this. And they invited us to come to the courtroom along with their family. And I remember sitting in the jury box, the the place where the jury would sit, as my friend and his wife stood before the judge. And the judge begins to charge my friend with the responsibilities of adoption. And as she began to say, Sir, do you now realize that that upon the completion of these events here, that this child will be yours. Do you understand what that means? Do you realize that this child will now bear your name, your identity? Do you realize that you'll be responsible for the welfare of this child? Do you understand that this child will be inheriting all that you have? And with each charge and each statement, as my friend responded, I understand or I will, Slowly, the tears began to fall. I had never seen my friend cry, not like this. And I realized that not only was he feeling the weight of what it meant to um, acquire this child into his family, but that he was also processing the idea that he had once been an orphan as well, standing before God, and that God had adopted him And had taken him as a spiritual orphan into his household. And the thought of him in that moment standing in for God in this child's life. And what it at one time meant for him broke him in that moment of time. And the tears began to flow with each response to the questions and comments and charges being made. And I found myself along with other family members weeping along with him. It was an incredibly intense, powerful and beautiful moment, and I'll never forget it. All of us who claim to be followers of Christ were at one time spiritual orphans. We had no family. We had no future. The power and beauty of the Holy Spirit is that he convicts us of our sin. He places us before a holy God, but not without hope. He uncovers the cross to us and in our brokenness as we realize the sacrifice of the Son of Jesus Christ and as we repent of our sin, by his conviction we are drawn in then and released from any condemnation. But it's not just the release from shame or condemnation. We become adopted. We become part of the family of God. Men and women alike. It doesn't matter nationality, ethnicity, status whatsoever. All are drawn in to the family of God and we cross out of the courtroom of judgment and move over to family court where the papers are signed and we enter in and move on with this new family. And the only responsibility we have then is to learn the ways of this new family, to learn the ways of our Heavenly Father. The Trinity, God is one, but three persons. Father, 
may have the traits of mother at times, may express them in that way, but is always identified as Father, the Son, Jesus Christ, the only way to the Father. He is the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way. His work on the cross, and then the Holy Spirit, not a force that's immaterial, but a part of the Godhead, a part of the Trinity who, who's, who works upon us, who convicts us of our sin, who illuminates our understanding, who unites us as a church and with the Father. All these things together make up an effective biblical view of God. I ask you and I challenge you, what is your view of God? It shapes everything else in how you perceive life as well as yourself and your role in this world. I challenge you once again, do you have a biblical worldview? Or have you just created a God that reflects what you want and what you need or that culture has inculcated within you? And if you do hold a biblical worldview, then recognize you will be challenged in this world. You need to know and believe and hold fast to those things of truth. Dearly Father, I pray that you'd guide and strengthen us as your people, that you'd unite us, that you'd work deep within our own hearts and minds your truth. Father, I pray your, your direction, your guidance on all who would hear this word today, that we would continue to move even deeper in faith before your face as brothers and sisters united as one. We commit all these things in our very lives to you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.